You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. For all the latest festival news or to sign up to our newsletter, visit www.ilfdublin.com. Well, you're very welcome. This is going to be a super event. I've been looking forward to it so much. Iyun um, Lee, as you've heard, is, uh, is from Beijing. She's a, a novelist, a short story writer, a memoirist, and a teacher. Yes. Um, uh, she lives in the United States, and um, we'll be talking about a number of her books, including the latest one, uh, the memoir, Dear Friend, From My Life, I Write to You in Your Life, which as you heard, is a meditation, um, an engagement with writing and writers and so much more. But first I want to say that Iyun is the first writer I've ever met who did a year of military service, or something akin to it, in Beijing. In central China. I, I went to college in Beijing. Oh, so yes. they sent we, you we, out. We were sent in the countries, or in, not countryside, but small town China. Because you'd have had too good a time in yes, Beijing. Yes, yeah. yes, we were sent to Henan province. So what happened, you know, just to give you a little background, I went to Beijing University, and the university was active in 1989, Tiananmen protest. So... So students from, from your university, university were among the protesters. Yes, and there were a lot of leaders came from my university. So, so after the Tiananmen Square massacre, the government decided to send four years of freshman class from the college. For four years, the freshman class were sent to the military, not as service, more as a disciplinary experience. To put manners on them. Yes, yes. So that's, that's what happened for four years, and I happened to fall into one of those years, yeah. Right. So uh, this was after you'd graduated, or? Yeah. Before I, oh, before I went into before college. The, before yeah. you were allowed to go so, into college. So yes. you were 18. Yes, I was 18 when I went right. to the army, yes. And I, th- I think I read in your book that you learned shooting practice. It was a, it was a very good... <laughs> I'm sorry. That's n- there's nothing to be proud of that. But well, I, could you hit those eyes at least? I I was I realized that required a lot of just meditation. You know, you could just be there and look at the bullseye, and I, I that was one experience. It was the most bizarre experience, and the other one was we would have these you know practice that we will be given blanks in the middle of the night. We will go out shooting at each other. And afterwards, we'll be required to, re- to report how many people you shot dead. And everybody said, oh, I, sh- I shot 10, I shot 10, because we, all, we each got 10 blanks. So it was like a game. But it was not a game. It was, mm. a, it was an absurd between childhood and adulthood between game and real killing, and that was the, the experience I had. There. And you never thought about staying in the army and making a career of it? <sighs> no, I wasn't. I, I, no, army was not for me. <laughs> <laughs> there was something else I noticed about your military service, which is um, 
You discovered you had uh, a gift for writing speeches which could yeah. be used for propaganda. Yeah. Tell us about that. So I was in the army and I had always been good at, you know, in school I'd always been good at writing things. So in the army, I, I realized I was good at writing speeches for my squad leader who was not good. And so she always asked me to write for her so she could give a speech. And I thought it was not fair, so I protested. And she said, well, you know, either you write for me or you can clean the toilet. Which you did can, you do? Or, or you can <laughs> clean the pigsty. I hated the pigsty, I hated toilet. So I said, okay, okay, I'll write. We can see the way this is going. <laughs> so I did write for her. And was, again, it was, you know, when you were 18, you wanted to be pure. You wanted to be true to yourself. But you also realized you, 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 you had, like, I had this, this capacity to write the most beautiful propaganda. Saying what? I, I, it was disturbing. It was disturbing. And I was disturbed by About that. the communist ideal? Well, just by my own ability to be part of it, I think I did not, I mean, I, I did certainly growing up, I did question the ideology, but I also question that I think, you know, there are certain people who doubt themselves all the time. I probably am one of those people. I, I think I questioned myself. At that time, I think China was already open, you know, communism was no longer so strict, but had I been born 10 years earlier, would I have been one of those red guards? I could not say no, I was not going to be, because I would not be able to say that. And I think that self-questioning has stayed with me since the army experience. Was that your first writing experience? I would say, yeah, you could you could say Whoa. that, but not, <laughs> certainly not not. I would not call that my the beginning of my writing career. It's fiction, though, isn't it? It was fiction. It was fiction. <laughs> it was fiction. It was also quite moving. Sometimes I could move people to tears by, I mean, you can do these beautiful prose, patriotic prose, for instance. I was good at that. Again, that's fiction, I think. You're right, that was fiction. But that was not the fiction I wanted to write. Let me take you back a few years before that. You're a little girl growing up in Beijing. Your father was a nuclear scientist. Mm -hmm. uh, your mother was a teacher. And you were on track to be a scientist yourself, yes. not a writer. Yes. So when I grew up in China, the students, young, young kids, were either on the science track or, you know, human humanities or liberal arts track since high school, the second year of high school. So I was good at math when I was little. I was a little mathematics, little prodigy. So, so I was put on science track and doing these. And I had the dream, when I was little, I had a dream that I wanted to become the Madame Curie of China. That's a good dream. That was a very good dream. But again, I was reading Madame Curie's biography when I was around 10, 11. Now I realize I wasn't really reading about her biography, I was reading fiction, because I like to imagine her as a character. I wasn't, I wasn't reading her science, but I was reading, 
you know, she was so poor in Paris when she studied in Paris, she could not afford anything, so she would eat radishes all day long. Like very slimming, mind you. And then she fainted from hunger. So I would, I would mark those details. You're, now you look at it, it's, it's all fiction. I'm, no, it's not fiction from Madame Curie's life, but I read it as fiction, as a character's life. Yes, the writer's eye for detail. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you, did, you did work as a lab assistant, though. Yeah. I was worried about the little mice that were injected <laughs> for asthma research. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, so I took a long way to come to writing. I was, I was a scientist in China. I was a scientist, science student. And, so, and then I immigrated to America to study immunology. I was going to get a degree in immunology. And so I was that where you were doing the research with I was mice. doing research with mice. A lot of asthma research. And there were more depressing research, I would not tell you. <laughs> but I think just by doing in asthma research, for instance, I would do this research on mice. And there were all these criteria you could measure their breathing, you know, how their lungs looked like. But one thing we could not measure was how a creature suffers. We would not know each mile, each mouse, how they suffer. So that's one thing that I think I would not get from science. I like science. I loved my experience as a scientist. But there's something else I wanted to know that science did not offer me. was how each individual, how each story is like, how each person feels. Could you imagine yourself as, a, as one of the mice then, as oh, the mice were characters? Oh. And stories? I mean, did you make up stories about them? Not about the mice, but you always have a feeling about, you know, the higher power, for instance. <laughs> you, you, you work in the lab, you, you look at these mice, and they lived a life that largely are determined by someone else. And but they also, Mice are different because at least, you know, they are, I think they're lower, but we also, not we, but we would go to animal house and we would see monkeys in the cages and that was very sad. Mm. You could see monkeys, you know, making faces at people or being sad, being depressed. You start to think about how it feels not to be yourself, but to be someone else or to be another self. I think that is important for a fiction writer. You need to think about others rather than yourself. Okay, so the, the young scientist that you were then started looking at other paths. <laughs> yes, I wasn't really, I mean, it was a very bizarre, I always say serendipity played an important role in my life. I wasn't going to become a writer, so I was going to study science. And I just happened, when I went to America, I landed in Iowa City, Iowa. And Iowa City has the best writing program in America. And when I arrived, someone said, everybody in town is writing a novel. And if you know Iowa City, everybody in town is writing a novel. <laughs> Because the doctor, you know, who worked above us, his office was above us, it turned out he was 
writing a novel, not only one, he, was, he wrote a trilogy about his experience in the Holocaust. So even, so I, I heard everybody was writing, so I thought I would want to try. And so I started trying. You took some writing classes. I did take some writing classes and I fell in love. I mean, it sounds so cheesy, but I did fell, fall in love with writing and also writing in English language. So apart from your, I'd love to read them, the propaganda speeches, <laughs> which were in Chinese, the first writing you did was in English. Yeah. I had never written creatively. I mean, if you say propaganda, it's also creatively, but creatively, really, truly, seriously, I started writing in English. And, English, and was it different? Was it? English became my first language in writing. English, I mean, English is not my mother tongue, so... I think I will always have this distance. You know, when you grow up in a language, you have this intimacy with the language. I don't have that intimacy with English, but I have something else, is I came into the language as an adult. I came to use the language to express myself as an adult. So that's where I started. And it's liberating. In what way? In what way? I think, I have, you know, I talked a little bit in the book about my relationship with Chinese language. I think one's relationship with a language, especially with a mother tongue, is also connected to one's relationship with the mother country, motherland, mm -hmm. and mother. And, and I think a lot of history from, my relationship, for instance, with my mother, made Chinese difficult to use. I'll give you an example. So when I was a young girl, I kept a journal, I kept a diary, you know, a little girl's diary. And we did not have a lock. I did not have a lock in the, in the house, so I would not be able to hide my diary. And my mother, I knew he, she could find my diary and, and she would she read. read. Why would she read your diary? Oh, there's not, privacy is not a con was not a concept when I grew up. My mother always says, if you hide, if you think about being private, that means you're hiding something distasteful from people. So, so she would read my, my diary. So I had this, I, I came up with this little way to, to write is, I use negative space in Chinese when I write. So, which means if I want to say there's a bird here, I would not say there's a bird here. I would say, look, Martina, look at these, you know, clouds. Look at the tree. Cold. Yeah, look at the grass. Look at all these things. I would leave the empty space in the shape of a bird. Nobody would know that I wrote about a bird, but I would know I could see that bird there. That's how I would write in Chinese, or that's my history with Chinese. So that, it's, that's not the way to write as a writer, I would say. You can do private writing that way. So, so English, I came to English. I, I say this really, actually, truly, I, I write in English because my mother does not read English. <laughs> So she's never read your books? She has never, and my, my books are never translated into Chinese per my request. 
Why don't you want them translated? I think it's a again, I think it's a it's a complicated issue for me to be read, you know, in my mother tongue, translated probably by someone else. I it's a big can of worms that I'm not ready to open. So so I think when you coming back to your question, why English? English is liberating because I don't have to write in code. I can write what I want to say. You, you also come at English, um, mm -hmm. if it's not your mother tongue, you're looking at phrases with new eyes. I noticed you picked yeah. up on the phrase to kill time, yeah. which we use all the time without thinking about it. But, but to you, to kill time sounded quite shocking. Yes. I, I think when you come to a language from another language, sometimes you notice little things. And one of the things I, even just from the very beginning, I found the phrase to kill time violent and scary. Because, you know, and we kill time, and we also kill time with the most frivolous activities. And we do things that, you know, waste our life, but we call it killing time. So, so I look at a lot of English language that way and think, you know, why is that? Why do we think about time that way? Why do we want to kill our time? So, And then you said something else apropos that. Um, you said, no one thinks of suicide as a courageous effort to kill time. You made that leap then from the frivolity yes. to the willful act. Yes. Because, you know, the book, part of, part of the book explored, I had two suicide attempts and was hospitalized twice after. In the United States. In the United States. But I think this book was written to meditate on time, partly meditate on time. And you're right, you know, we could kill time with frivolous activities. But really, the only way we could kill time at one time, in one, one moment in my you know, distress, I thought, was well, suicide is also a way to kill time. But suicide is such a loaded way or word for everybody. We would never say suicide is a way to kill time. But I think if, you know, not even about suicide, but if anyone who has had experience of depression or distress, I think sometimes the difficulty is time. You don't see the end of this darkness. It's hard to live from one moment to the next, from one day to the next. So that time stops almost. I think that's a scary feeling for us. You feel trapped within time, yes, within yes. this dark time. Yes, and you almost feel like time really, time moves on for everyone else, but stops for you. And that sensation is scary. And I think when I say kill time, suicide is a way to kill time. It's to kill that way, to stop that time to trap me, or at least. When did you first start feeling this sense of depression, this dark weight? I, I would say, you know, I mean, in the end, looking back, I would say as a teenager, early teenage years, I would, I probably had developed this depression. And, but a lot of things happened between then and, you know, when this book was written. A lot of things, I think a combination of many things, 
I we talked a little bit about you know mental illness is partly this you know from family genes. My so there's a family history of family mental. history. My grandmother died in asylum, so she was kept in an asylum for years. And would she have been put in there against her will? Well, or? I mean, in the end, she could not mm. just function. And so in each generation, there would like in my mother's side, there there are in each generation there are people who suffer from mental illness, and. You realize you were. I realized I was born with that gene. You know whether it, it would manifest or not, we can never tell. But that's part of it. And and you know upbringing, family history, cultural background, a lot of things would contribute to this. Would life in China have been a difficulty as well? I mean, you were quite a little girl during the denunciations and um, the executions, weren't you? Yes, I think I, you know, I think it, I part. It's funny because I I wrote in my ar in the army experience. I did write about one girl who came from the countryside, and in her village, women kill themselves all the time. She said she had this really funny way to put it. She said, "Oh, she said, you know, they just they just." drink weed killers, and it's just like apples falling from the trees, they just die. And you realize there's that, you know, life, how, how you value life, or how you don't value life in the background, in a culture, at least in the countryside, when women don't see their future, when women live sometimes in despair. I don't think I grew up with that, but I think I, I do think maybe I share certain experience with you know my generation. You you were aged five and you were taken out of school to um, hear denunciations. Yeah. So I so this was really pre. I would say I it was right after right around Cultural Revolution was going to end. Can you give us the years? I think it was 1977, okay. so it would be the year right after Cultural Revolution was ending, because I was still in daycare, not yet, you know, first grade. So they would take us to, out to see, to see, you know, a big denunciation meeting, or uh, with four or five people who were going to be executed. So everybody, you know, hailed in the victory of the people and then they would be they would be transported to the next compound. They would, you know, be they would just be displayed, public display. And and that was, you know, an experience my generation had. I think younger generation probably would not have. How does a 5-year-old make sense of that? I don't think it's interesting because I did not find it strange, only because that was life. I think if you were born in that life, you would not find that life strange. Only when you are out of that life. I think I started to think about these things when I became a mother. And You've two sons. Yes. And I think you started to think about what young children would think about these things. But I could remember when I was five, I just watched these things and t 
took them in and remembered them without understanding them. And I think not understanding them is one, probably was good for a child. Mm-hmm. Two, I think for me, not understanding them made me remember these things. And I think remembering helped in the end to write. You write about the cultural revolution in The Vagrants, yes. your novel. Uh-huh. And uh, so uh, is it a way of processing it? Yes, I think... Well, I, I dedicated that book to my parents. Your mother doesn't know. She can't read it. I know, but, <laughs> but she knew I dedicated the book oh, you told to her. her. I think in a way I want... I want my parents to have one book that I wrote. And the book was really for their generation. And that, that book I wrote, I think the, li- the, the stories, the history, was the history they lived through. I mean, there are a lot of suicides in it, a lot, a lot of deaths of, in a it. A lot of deaths, a lot of, you know, just how much lives com- mattered to people and how much lives did not matter. And I, so that, you could, you could call that my processing history, also just processing my parents' generation and how they lived. And do you go back to China? I do go back to China, yes. And do you see huge differences? On the surface, yes. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> Tell us about under the surface. Uh, under the surface, you know, people change. I always think people, people change very slowly. And that's why we still read Jane Austen, you know. Otherwise, if, if we change every day, Jane Austen would not make sense to us. But I think, and on, on, on top of, you know, if you go to China now, the China I see now is not a country I grew up in. You know, I did not know. When I went back, I would get lost where I used to grow up because all the roads, all the buildings, everything is new. But I think underneath... People have, I mean, I think you must feel that here too, when you have, you know, 2,000 years of history and all these accumulated things. People live in history and they don't just, they don't just say, oh, we're new again, we're, we're fresh, we're new, we don't have to live in history. Though the history goes with us. In Chinese culture, um, are you expected to do as your parents want? Was it quite anarchic of you to switch from science to writing? They certainly were not happy. When I called my parents, I said I did not want to be a scientist. My mother said, now you are wasting all the good education I gave you. <laughs> so they were not happy. But I think they accepted in the end. Yeah. Does it help that you're successful? Well, it probably does. <laughs> um, so, uh, the relationship with your mother is a little bit tricky, is it? Yes, it is. You know, I've, it's so funny because I hate to say, "Oh, yes," you know, mother-daughter. But I'm sure all mothers, you know, are, you know, a lot of stories are difficult because your relationship with your mother. My relationship with my mother is tricky. Partly is. She's very attached to me. Attached to you? Attached Are to you me. the favorite child? She, I have a sister, but from very early on, she made it known to everybody in the world that she favored me. 
She did not really like my sister, which was a hard thing for both sisters, sure. to, for both daughters to hear. Yeah. Is your sister in the United States yes, as well? Yes, she's in the United States, yeah. And especially I grew up really close to her. But then, you know, you you have two two daughters who are really close. One is loved, one is not. Mm. And mm. it just created all these troubles for everybody. <laughs> she should be the writer. <laughs> the I unloved know, child. that's true, isn't that right? <laughs> Although... Yes, that's right, that's right, yeah. She isn't, is she? No, she's not, she's a scientist. (laughs) (laughs) I figured you were going to say that, actually. So, uh, did you feel you were a new person, or could be a new person, or a different person when when you went to the United States? I had this notion that I would become a new person, but I was young and I was naive. You know, you thought you crossed the border, you took up a language, all of a sudden you, you, you just created the whole thing afresh, like from the beginning. Was that a new person? No, I think I was, I become this person, I become this person I want to be, I think, partly. You know, I want to be a writer, I, I, I started writing. But I, I think I wrote somewhere, I think, you know, you, you don't cross a border to become a new person. Things follow you from home country across the border. So you started studying. You had Marilyn Robinson, the great writer, as mm-hmm. one of your teachers. Yes. I have, I have the fortune of to study with a few really great writers, including Marilyn Robinson in, at Iowa. And then you've had connections with some Irish writers. Yes. You know, I, we have to backtrack because even before I started writing, I, this, I, you were a reader. I was a reader. I have always been a reader in my life. And, and I, one time, I was still a scientist. I was reading The New Yorker, and I read a story in The New Yorker by William Trevor. And the moment I finished the story, I went to the university library. I checked out a book by him. And Do you remember fr- which one? After Rain. No, actually, Hill Bachelor. It was Hill Bachelor that collection just came out. So I checked out that collection. And from there, I just never have stopped reading William Trevor. <laughs> and I read all his work. And I think really reading his work made me want to be a writer and made me think about writing. And, and then I just, I told my PhD advisor that I wanted to become a writer. And that's where, that's when I gave up science and moved into writing. But a few years later, I enrolled in the writing program. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. And you've met William Trevor. I, I did, In yeah. some ways, he was a mentor to you. He, he was a mentor on the pages, but also we became friends and we... Car- you know. So I'm really envious um, <laughs> of how you formed this bond with William Trevor, and I've memorised it, and I'm going to stalk writers now that, <laughs> that I admire. Do, would you like to tell the audience how yes, you befriended him? you know... And bear in mind, he was a very, very private man. He was probably one of the most private writers. And of course, when I first published my book, there was this history, the book won the Frank O'Connor Prize. 
And his book was actually a shortlist for that prize that year. And of course, I felt bad, you know, <laughs> because the whole reason I was a writer was because of him. So I, but I also felt at the time I published my first book, I should acknowledge his influence. So I sent a book, I sent a copy of my book with a note. This to was him. a collection of short stories. Yes, was the yeah the first collection. I sent the collection with a note thanking him, and. A few months later, he wrote back in a very gracious thank you note. And this was when <laughs> Martina said I was stalking him. <laughs> and then I came to London for another event. I went to London for another event. And I thought, oh, you know, maybe I could meet him. So I wrote to him. I said, oh, I'll be in London. Could it be you know, possible if I come to Devon to meet you? <laughs> I, you know, looking back, I could just really be a very dangerous person <laughs> and full of designs, right? So she, he, he, he wrote back, he said, let's meet, but not in Devon. <laughs> not in my house. <laughs> not in my house. But it turned out I couldn't meet that time. So very, just because I had all these publicity lined up, I said I couldn't. And he said, I, I'll come to Boston the next year. Maybe we can meet in Boston. So I went to Boston to meet him. And we had a very good conversation. And we just became friends. And I, meet, I met him a few other times in England. And You and just gelled immediately? Yes. Across the sort of age gap and it's, it's continent, you know, a I, continent You know, apart. it's so interesting because he just said he was one of the most private writers. I, I am also private. I would never have written to anyone we saying, don't I want to. We don't believe that for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Who else have you written to? I, I, <laughs> I mean, if someone wrote me and said, could we meet? Of course, I said, no, 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 absolutely not. I have no interest in meeting you. No, I think he was, he was generous. He was also, I do think he took a risk in meeting someone not known to him. Well, it is potentially a risk. It is, absolutely. No, we can, you know, you can, you can you, if you read Trevor's stories, there are a lot of dangers, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I could just be one of those Trevor characters who looked harmless, but really not harmless at all. What was that Michael Douglas film? You know, the bunny boiler <laughs> film. <laughs> yeah, so, but I think... Fatal attraction. <laughs> but I do think meeting him and, you know, correspondence all these years, I think he became a mentor. He became a mentor. What is it that he taught you? I think it was his ways of looking at the world, looking at the characters, looking at the stories. You know, if you, if you read his stories, he doesn't have his... You know, I always think there are two kinds of writers. There are not more than two kinds of writers, but I mean, I just, I, I kept thinking Philip Roth, for instance, just died, and great writer. But Philip Roth, as in every book Philip Roth wrote, mm. and William Trevor is absent in every single story William Trevor wrote. So that's the difference, I think. I really look up you know, that kind of writing. I, I think I want to be absent 
in my stories because stories belong to the characters and and I'm only telling the, their stories. I'm not God. I, I cannot direct their moves. So, so that's where I, what I learned from Trevor. And also, I think the other thing I thought was interesting, I just thought about it today because I was taking a walk around town. And I it's thought, not always this sunny. I know, I get, I'm really lucky. I, I took a long walk and thinking about Trevor, you know, I mean, I do, he, when he died, I was quite sad. But I think there was one thing that I think I also learned from him was how to write about time. You know, again, this book is about time, but in fiction, a lot of fiction is about how time passes. And Trevor, of all the people, is just a master about how writing how time passes. You know, I think in some of his short stories, 20 pages, in 20 pages, 50 years pass. And not every writer has that skill to put 50 years in a story. And the way he deals with time, the way he puts time it just puts character. Look at look at care. Every character has a past, but that past is inexplicable, mostly to themselves and to the readers and to the writer. And I think I learned that about how to look at the past from him. You you just said there about wanting to be absent in your writing, and it occurred to me: has that anything to do with the mental health struggles? This desire to be absent. Absent from life. Absent from life, yes. I think, um, certainly, I think if you look at, especially if you look at this book at certain moments, yes, I think you always want to hold back, hold yourself back. You know, one is to be protective of yourself. You don't want the world to see you. You don't want the world to see you as a vulnerable person. On the other hand, I think, what helps me, you know, I, I, I think reading and writing saved my life. As I can look at my life, I can look at my pain and say, oh, life has injured me. But that doesn't matter because life has injured a lot of people. And I want to turn around and look at other people, look at other characters and say, what does life do to them? Let me follow them around in the world. Let me see what they are what their stories are like. So the writers you engage with in this book, and they cover a wide variety of people from Chekhov to yeah. McGahern to Trevor to Catherine Mansfield. Yes. Um, it's like a conversation you're having with mm -hmm. them. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the book, this, this book really was written right after I came out of the hospital. And as I explained, I think time was difficult at at that time. Just to live from one day to the next was challenging. But one thing I always liked was to read writers' diaries and their letters. Why? Because time passes in their diaries. Time passes in their letters. If you read, say, a lifelong correspondence of Elizabeth Bishop, you realize, you know, she has re repeated a lot of, you know, her pains came back every year. Every, once in a while, she, she 
she, her life became a pattern. But that's not only Elizabeth Bishop, it's every writer. So I, I started to read these uh, writers' diaries and letters just to see, because these writers are writers who lived before me, who have had a career, who have had a life. And I wanted to see how they struggled in their situations. You know, you mentioned Catherine Mansfield. I found her fascinating. She was quite cold and controlled in her short stories. You know, she was quite controlled. But if you read, if, well, I, I read her notebook, the lifelong notebook. She was not controlled in her notebook. She was wild. She was in so much pain. I mean, she was physically, you know, in pain because she was dying of TB. But then if you follow this writer, say, lifelong, you notice patterns. For instance, I really like she had, she, she wrote down all the expenses, you know, how much money she spent on things. And when she was married to, or when the marriage with John Marie was still good, you would see money spent on curtains, shoe polishes, shirts. You know, this is family life, a marriage mm. life. Mm. And later she, and then there was also money spent on stamps, paper, ink, you know, for, for, pe for her to write to people. Laundry. Yes, laundry. And later, when she was in the, in the hospital, she was in the, in the spa, and she was really by herself, very lonely, this expense changed. A lot of money was spent on ink, stamps, paper. You realize she was living a lonely life. She had to communicate with the world. But that, you have to follow a writer's whole life long of diaries to get that story. That's the detail as well, the eye yes, for detail. Yes, yes. So I think you said Virginia Woolf didn't spend very much time on uh, laundry lists. And I did say, I said Virginia Woolf only recorded parties, lunch parties. <laughs> <laughs> but Mansfield recorded a lot of laundry and, yeah. you know. Could we hear some of the, uh, the work? Uh, yes. You mentioned that you might read a passage relating to William Trevor. Yes, I'll read maybe just a couple of things about when I met, how I met Trevor, just to get a sense of who Trevor was in my eyes. Okay. Letters, this was after I, I was trying to meet him in London and couldn't. Letters were exchanged a few months ahead of Trevor's visit to America to set the date of the meeting. In October 2007, I took a right-eye flight from California to Boston to meet him for lunch. I had three hours, as I was to catch the evening flight back. Many things were talked about during the lunch. A trip the previous year, Trevor and his wife, Jane, had taken to meet the letterer, who would carve their gravestones. A conversation decades ago with his father, about becoming a letterer himself, a funeral during which religious music had been played against the will of the dead and the alive, a conversation with Grant Green, another with W.S. Pritchett, descriptions of Molly King's work and the graveyard she was buried in, which I would visit the next year. Halfway through the lunch, 
A woman in an orange blouse, walking past the restaurant patio, caught Trevor's attention. There was something incomprehensible about her in that moment, he explained. Such moments may pass, he said, though I sense that often they did not. So that's one little, and I'm going to read just another very short one. I, I just want one when I visit him in Devon. Do you think of your characters after you finish the books? I asked Trevor the next time I visited him when he was driving him from the train station to his house. I do, he said. I don't reread them, but I remember the characters. I still feel sad for them sometimes. Do you? I remember your characters and feel sad for them too, I said. He looked at me. No, what I mean is, do you think about your characters? Do you feel sad for them? I knew that was what he had asked, but to admit that characters, having left, still kept me a hostage seemed silly. It was nearly spring, February, though warm and sunny, and flowers in the garden were already blossoming. At lunch, Trevor placed me on the side of the table, facing the window, so I could see outside. He sat down and rose again, pulling the curtain ever so slightly. This way, he explained to me, I could enjoy the garden without the sun shining into my eyes. What a lovely man. I feel sad for some of his characters too. I feel sad for Lucy Gold. I don't yes. know, does anyone know the story of Lucy Gold? Yes. Yeah. At life waiting. Um, John McGahern. Yes. You've mm. visited Leitrim. You've walked, I walked his country the, lanes. I walked the country lanes. I look at the old house, the, the barracks. The barracks. The barracks. In yeah, and I, I, I discovered McGahan the different way, you know, I, but it's still, you know, I discovered Trevor in an issue of The New Yorker. I discovered McGahan when I was in London. I was in a bookshop and McGahan's books were facing, were placed with the cover facing out. And I look at the name. McGahan is not a household name in America. And I realized I'd never heard of the name. So I bought a few books by him. Well, what that. drew you to the book if you hadn't heard of him and did you take it down and read the synopsis no just the cover just the name I oh McGahern <laughs> the name no I just realized it was a name I'd never heard of who had there were a, so many books. so many books so that's a writer's career there so I was curious so I bought a few books just to get a sense who this writer was fell in love with his writing. And so I read almost all his work. I read his, I read one of his stories for the New Yorker podcast called Wine Taste, a one, oh sorry, Wine, wine Breath. And, and then I think I, after that I visited Leitrim and just to get a sense McGahan's, you know, landscape, what that landscape is like, what people are like. It was a very good experience. It was also interesting, people would come to me and say, you know, so-and-so in that book, look, 
Here's his graveyard. He said, no, he's buried in this graveyard. Here's the stone. And so-and-so is, you know, is this person in this village. And I realized people really love him and, you know, know his work in an intimate way. That only, I mean, speaking of a writer writing in a second language, not wanting to be read by Chinese readers, I think he is on the opposite. He's read by by the people around him. He's loved by people around him. His community. Community, mm. yes. And it was quite a very touching experience for me. Did you read his books differently, having walked his country lanes? Very much so. I I read his memoir twice, and the first time was early on. And on the way to Leitrim, I on the airplane, I read the memoir again. You know, there was that refrain of we walked, up, you know, we walked past this and we walked past this and the country lanes and the buttercups and all these descriptions. When I got there, there was one sentence in that memoir that I all of a sudden understood or read differently. He said, I started to understand the best life is, you know, the, qui the lived quietly. The lived quietly with, you know, everything coming quieter with, all the changes are imperceptible, and that that line, the imperceptible changes, really made sense when I visited the countryside. Yeah. Mm. Mm. It's quite William Trevor-esque, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah. Now, John McGahern had a good relationship with his mother. He often wrote about missing his mother. I know, but he, the mother's death, it was <laughs> just heartbreaking. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's just heartbreaking when they just buried her while he was not there. He was yeah. not at the funeral, but he did. You know, I well, I we went to see his grave, and also noticed that he was buried with his mother. His father was not buried there, so I thought that to me was a sort of a comfort just to see you know these two people were buried together they love each other mm. Yeah. Mm. do we have any writers or students of writing in the audience here we do excellent because um, you teach creative writing mm -hmm. and literature mm -hmm. and um, I saw that um, you said that there were two things you want for, um, for your students to understand, that they don't write for publication, mm -hmm. um, and that you write to have a conversation with a great writer. Yeah. I, I think, you know, having taught creative writing for so many years, you know, I, I have a lot of reservations about teaching writing. I don't think I can teach people how to write, although I, I think a writer's job is to teach students how to read. Okay. And I do teach them how to read. And, and one thing, I think young writers, at least my experience with American students, is they find some attraction in the in the in the writer's life, which means you are a writer, but you know you go out, you have these book parties and fame and money, but they are not why we write. And 
also a writer's life is quite solitary. Really, you're writing by yourself. And for, for me, I think writing is to have a conversation. You know, if I write a story, sometimes I would think, well, this story is going to have a conversation with a William Trevor story. And when I say conversation, I mean my characters and his characters are from different countries, different continents, you know, different background. They share nothing. But in my head, these characters would meet in the land, landscape of fiction, and they, they would share something. So I would write, as I wrote quite a few stories to have a conversation with William Trevor's stories. And, and I wanted my students to understand, you have to, in order to be good, you really want, you really have to be great. And to be great is to have a great conversation with great writers, rather than saying to be great means you get a big advance for your book. So I'm quite old-fashioned when it comes to teaching writing. I'm just, I want my students to read. And you do your own writing between midnight and 4 a.m.? I used to do that. I stopped. It was not good for my health. I'm kind of relieved because <laughs> it worried me this midnight to 4 a.m. This well, lady is so focused. When my children were young, again, you know, I, was, I wanted everything. I wanted to be a mother all the time for them. I wanted to be present in their life. I didn't want to be that writer who closed the door, you know, office door so the children would not see their mother. Then I have to have a full-time job. So, so that time, midnight to four o'clock, was the only time I had back then. So did you just surrender sleep? Yes, I did not sleep for years. And that was the other thing, you know, about the breakdown. Uh, the sleep deprivation mm. plays an important role in mental illness. And certainly, I agree with every medical expert on that, saying everybody's told me, you have to sleep. And I learned my lesson, yes, you know, you, as, a, as a living person, we have to lie down and sleep. <laughs> you write in English. Do you dream in Chinese? No, I dream in English. I don't dream in Chinese. I only, the only thing I do in Chinese is I do my math in Chinese. How does that work then? Dreaming in English? No, doing your math in Chinese. Oh, math is so ingrained in your brain, so connected to your mother tongue. I would not be able to say one plus one. It would take me forever to say one plus one equals two. But in Chinese, I can do that probably faster. But I dream in English. And in my, I wrote one really bizarre episode in the book. I had a dream about Beijing and I had a dream about people from my childhood, these were the old women when I was young, so now they are dead. And in my dream, they were alive, and they started talking to me in English. And I, I knew it was not true, they were not talking, they would not be able to talk to me in English, but in my dream, they talked in English, so, I, so by then I knew my dream was in English. Mm. Someone told me, if you dream in English, or if you dream in a language, if, if you curse in a language, that language is becoming your mother tongue. So I, or so first language. So I dream in English and I curse in English. <laughs> Does anyone have a question? 
I think we have mics. Do we have mics? Ooh, okay. Is there anything you want to say in 30 seconds? 30 seconds? <laughs> no pressure there. We do, can't you keep, do you keep a diary still? I do, on and off, not all the time. I. It hasn't put you off, the knowledge that future generations may read it? Oh, you know, I'm going to do what Philip Larkin did. <laughs> so Philip Larkin, before, the day before he died, I think he... Oh, he burned everything? He left the instruction that right after he died, his, uh, his companion and his secretary, they tore, yeah. up. they tore up everything, they burned everything. But you could leave those instructions, but they may not be carried out. Like Kafka, right? Okay. Right. <laughs> no, I need to find someone trustworthy to burn. <laughs> That's I. Yeah, I. I did think about the risk of having someone peek into my journal. That's a little scary. On the other hand, I, I keep a journal just to get a sense of how time passes in my life. What do you put, is it? Do you put current affairs in, or how you're feeling? Or? Mostly just very short, just a little recording of my feelings mm -hmm. and how I feel about things. Not what did everything. you put in your diary for coming to Dublin? <laughs> I won't tell. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't put anything there. I was, I, but I was walking around today. Thinking about, I, w I mean, I think that would go into my diary. Was I was thinking about how, if you look at it, because we're also doing William Trevor's event tomorrow, and if you look at William Trevor's stories and novels, oftentimes they look at the past mm. in such a beautiful way, and but he's often talking about the present. Yes, by 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 setting a story by getting in the, past. the past into mm. the present. So. So this today I was walking around. I had the thought. I thought that I, he did teach me how to look at the past. So I think that's the thought that I would probably put into a diary. Mm. Do we have a question, gentleman here? Hello. Um, as she was a writer who also emigrated, I wondered if you saw any similarities between yourself and Catherine Mansfield? Yes, Catherine Mansfield not only was an immigrant writer, she also changed her career. She was a, she was a musician before she became a writer. And I was very aware of her. I like, I like, I mean, Trevor also had another career before he became a writer. Trevor was an artist. He, he, he did sculpture before he became a writer. So Catherine Mansfield, I, yeah, I was aware she she came to England as an immigrant. She never really, you know, was part of England, but she was also I I think Australia, I mean I mean New Zealand also sort of was no longer home for her by the time she was in England. She so she could not go back saying that's my home country. So she was in between and I, I she's yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very aware of that fact of her life. Yes. 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 Yeah. Oh, thank you. 
I, I wonder if I could read that just to explain the title. The title, Dear Friend, From My Life I Write to You in Your Life, was an entry in Catherine Mansfield's journal. So I can read you that one paragraph. This was right after I came out of the hospital the second time. I read her all the time. For a while, I read Catherine Mansfield's notebooks to distract myself. Dear friend, from my life, I write to you in your life, she wrote in an entry. I cried when I read that line. It reminds me of the boy from years ago who could not stop sending the designs of his dreams in his letters. So the boy was a childhood friend who committed suicide. It reminds me, too, why I do not want to stop writing. The books one writes, past and present and future, are they, not saying, are they not trying to say the same thing? Dear friend, from my life, I write to you in your life. What a long way it is from one life to another. Yet why write, if not, that, if not for that distance, if things can be let go? every before replaced by an after. Thank you for mentioning the, the, the title. Does anyone else have a question for Eun? Eun, sorry, I said it wrong. That's okay. It's okay, I'm still not. Eun told me that even her kids pronounce it yeah, wrong. Yeah, my, my name is a little, <laughs> my name is a little tricky. Yeah. Does it mean something? It means flying clouds. Oh, wow. It That's sounds kind of quite nice. a very yeah. fluffy. <laughs> Somebody has a question? Yeah, I think the, the mic is going there. Hi. Uh, I was very curious about what you said um, about your mother uh, not understanding privacy and you know, reading your diary. And I'm wondering, how did you develop your own private world then? Mm -hmm. and, and was writing a part of that, or was that how you, 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 you developed your own private world? Mm -hmm. Yes, you know, I actually, now I remember when you ask privacy, I, I don't know, do you think in Ireland privacy is, has always been a concept? Probably not, no. Yes, that's but, um, would I, mothers read diary? Any mothers in the audience, hands or, up and read their child's diary. Well, the reason, <laughs> or fathers. The reason, I think you, you caught them so interesting, the reason I was asking that was when when McGahan did an interview in America in, for Lennon Foundation, I think he said something I felt the same about my life in China. He said, well, he said, when I grew up in Ireland, there's no pri there was no private life, but there was secret life. And I always remember that mm. distinction between a private life and a secret life. And so when I grew up, one is China was so crowded, you know, it was just, Beijing was just, everywhere you turn there would be people and everybody was in everybody's way. But also just the concept of privacy indicated something shameful and you should not have privacy, otherwise, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself. And I'm, my mother always says I'm a secretive person. I think she should say I'm a private person, but to her I look secretive. I think to, to develop that private world for myself when I grew up was through reading. And the moment you open a book, you, you are in another world. Nobody can get that world away from you. And reading is the only way to, you know, at least when I was younger, reading was the only way to live that private life. 
now I think writing too is a private life for me. You know, the books have their lives that are not private, but I can't, I can't account for their lives. <laughs> the books are finished and they have to go out. But for myself, writing is a private life. And how to carve that life out. I think I, it helps that I write fiction and I live with all these people that nobody sees them. And sometimes I feel bad for my family because I live with all these people in my head, but they would not be able to see them. I, I, I have conversations with all these characters and they, they are part of my private life too. Do we have another question? Just while we're thinking of another question, I remembered your mother gave away your hamsters, your pet hamsters, because oh, you were too yes. fond of them. Yes, that's... <laughs> Not that we're demonizing her. <laughs> I know, my mother had an interesting way to look at the world, and he thought I was too fond of the f hamster, and I did not show enough love to her as I loved my pet hamster. So while I was not home, she gave them away, a pair. She gave them away. And that episode, the reason you, we, you mentioned that episode, so American poet Marianne Moore, I really, you know, she did not marry all her life. She was really enslaved by her, you know, to her mother. She was just her mother's slave. So when she was, you know, in her 20s, her mother, and, and Marianne Moore, they, they lived in New York, they lived in a small apartment, they adopted a little cat, little kitty, and named the kitty Buffalo. And Marianne Moore became so fond of Buffalo. And while she was out, her mother killed Buffalo. Her mother killed Buffalo for the same reason my mother gave away the hamsters. Because they just, I think there's, I mean, the, that's also mental illness, you know, mm -hmm. when a mother would do that. But I think for their generation, for Moore's mother's generation, it's not, it's just considered, she considers she did something, a favor to Marianne Moore. And together, they carry this poor dead cat to East River and led the body into East River. And Marianne Moore said, for years after, she could not go to that pier. She had to walk around that to avoid that spot. How did she, how was it a favor? Were they moving house? What, what, how was it a favor to get rid of the cat? She didn't want Marianne Moore to get too attached to the cat. Okay, I'm getting quite upset here because I have a cat and actually I have to tell you, it's called Chekhov. <gasps> oh. You're a fan of Chekhov, That's right? right. I am a big fan of Chekhov. And yeah. Catherine Mansfield was a big fan of Chekhov. Yeah. And she said she wanted to... She's, she's so funny. She said, oh, she said I, wanted, I, want to in, I want to adopt a Russian baby and name him Anton. <laughs> okay, or she could have got a cat and called him Chekhov. <laughs> My cat sniffs books, not that I'm being competitive about it. Yeah. Um, does anyone else have a question? Uh, I just, I was reminded of it when you said, I think that's a really good distinction, uh, John McGahern saying about privacy, because a lot of Irish people grew up in big families, so there mm -hmm. actually was no privacy, and the phone, if you had one, was in the hall, mm -hmm. so everybody could hear your conversation. 
but secrecy was bad, you know, but yeah. yet you had to try and find a, some world to survive, maybe, and the secret world was through books or music or whatever. Yeah. But the bit I, that it just reminded me of was the section, the piece in your book where you're talking about the woman who lived with the husband who was blind from diabetes. Yes. And she took her life. And it was just a sentence, one has to have a solid self to be selfish. I don't know if you could yeah. elaborate on that, yeah. but I, I thought so that the, was... This is a, yes, thank you. So this is a story. I, I was in the hospital and my the woman who shared my room She's a very warm-hearted African-American woman who grew up in Upper State, New York. And she grew up in a family of six siblings. She was the only one adopted. And, and she was not the oldest one. She was not the youngest one. She was somewhere in the middle. She was adopted. She said she didn't know when she was young. She just knew that she was different from everybody else. She said she remembered when she was three or four, just lying there thinking about dying. Just that, you know, I think again, maybe she has that genes. So, so she, she, she went on to have a good, you know, for a while she had a good career, successful career in publishing. And she met a man, she married him. She said on the day of the wedding, she realized she married the, uh, the wrong man. Because she is a very elegant and beautiful woman. She said the whole first dance, he was dancing with me, looking at every guest, making sure they know that I was the prize. But she said he did not look at me one second when he danced with me. And she said she realized she made a mistake, but then they had, you know, twins. And then he was, he, eventually he was so sick, he, he was blinded by diabetes, he could not move. And she could not bring herself to divorce him, even though she suffered so many years. She said, you know, I just cannot let go, you know, I cannot abandon a man when he is blind and sick in bed. So. Uh, they would watch old movies together, classic movies, because he would remember the words from the movies, and so he could follow. So, you know, if you look at her life, she is an unselfish woman. She really dedicated her life to, I mean, for a while, she really wants to dedicate her life to her husband and her children, but she was so worn out by this life and so she attempted suicide and and then she was in the hospital with me and i i did when i wrote about that passage i was thinking people would you know if people did not have an experience people would say well you try to kill yourself that's abandoning your children that's abandoning your husband, that's a selfish act. And I think a lot of people criticize, you know, suicide or attempted suicide as a critic, as a selfish act. But I understand her as she did not have a self anymore. She could not find that self. And when, when she did not have that self, that's what, that was a painful thing. So, so that's why she did it. And so I think you cannot call her selfish because, she, I mean, she does not have that solid self. I hope she has found some solid self. But that does that answer your question? Yeah.
So I'm afraid we're uh, out of time now. Um, uh, we certainly couldn't call Eun Lee a selfish speaker because you've shared yourself <laughs> and your thoughts most generously. So can I ask you to put your hands together? Thank you very much. Thank you.